Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, continuing our sermon series through the gospel according to Luke. This morning we come to chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Luke 13. Verses 31 through 35. Please give your full attention to the word of God. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm sure many of us, or most of us, have been talking this past week with our friends, co-workers, fellow students, about the Summer Olympics. It's been a consuming thing in our culture for the last couple of weeks. And it's been interesting how we get so attached to these athletes in a brief period of time and then so many of them we don't ever hear about again. We get the backstories from the networks. It tells sometimes the sad and difficult stories, sometimes the triumphant background. But they tell us stories about the athletes so that we'll care about them, so that we feel connected to them as they compete in the games. And then those who win the medals, the gold, the silver, the bronze medals, I'm always interested in the interviews that they do with the athletes afterwards. And the athletes, you can tell, they're just obviously in the throes of their victory. And they talk as though they've reached the pinnacle. They've reached the top of the mountain. They've accomplished all of their goals things that they've worked for. Some of these athletes, they train for 30 or 40 hours a week for years upon years from the time they're small children to get to the point where they win a medal at the Olympics as they stand on that podium and realize, this is it. This is everything I've worked for. You hear that phrase over and over. But they're in their teens, many of them. They're in their 20s. The oldest ones are maybe in their 30s. What is the rest of their life then? You think even those who can move on, not many of them have a professional sport that they can move into and make a living off of, but you watch baseball, basketball, football. In your early early 30s, you're old. And yet you have more than half the rest of your life to live if the Lord gives you 70 years. What? How do they get through that transition? Everything, every effort, every plan, everything has been built towards that moment of winning that medal, and now they have to make a transition to the rest of their life. How do they set goals? How do they find meaning and purpose? 
We are all made in the image of God. We're not animals. What makes us distinct from the animals is we need meaning in life. We need a purpose. We need goals. Some of us find our goals in education. Some of us find our goals in our career. Some of us find our goals and our meaning and our purpose in our family, our friends. But we need to have a purpose. We need to live for something. One of the images of Jesus that we see so clearly in the gospel according to Luke is that he was a driven man. He had purpose. He had a goal, a mission to fulfill. And you see that throughout his earthly ministry. Back in chapter 9, verse 51, I commented on it back then, months ago, that it says in that text, just so simply but so powerfully, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What waited him in, awaited him in Jerusalem was the cross and the empty tomb. But he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was driven to fulfill the mission of his life. And as we see in today's passage, I read just a moment ago, he says, I must go on my way. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. What we see in today's passage is that he responds to an effort to derail his mission, an effort to distract him from what he was called to do, to change his agenda, change his plan, change his goal. He faced it many times, especially back when Satan tried to derail his mission when he tempted him in the wilderness. As he responds to that effort to derail him and to intimidate him, to throw him off his mission, we see what motivation drove him. We see how he thought. We see the principles on which he was basing his mission and his ministry. And in that, we can find our own purpose and meaning. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus had a unique mission. Only Jesus the eternal son of God, the one who is fully God and fully man, the one who is perfect in thought, word, and deed, only Jesus could fulfill his mission of going to the cross and dying as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. Only Jesus could fulfill that mission. But don't ever forget, your calling, your mission in life is derived from his mission. You have a calling, you have a mission because he accomplished his. And so the principles that drove him, the goals that he had, the agenda that he had, ours is received from him. And it reflects his mission. It completes the work that he came to do as we do the work of the kingdom. So this group of Pharisees come to him one day while he's teaching and they warn him to get out of town. Jesus, you need to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. Now this Herod is Herod Antipas, the wicked ruler, the tetrarch of that area where Jesus had been doing most of his ministry, Galilee and the surrounding areas. That's where Jesus had been during most of his earthly ministry. Herod is the one threatening his life. 
Now, it's very doubtful that these Pharisees really cared about Jesus' well-being. But you can tell by the way Jesus responds to them that he sees them as message boys for Herod, those who are carrying out the will of Herod. It looks, it appears, we can't be sure, but it looks like Herod sent these Pharisees to Jesus to give him this warning to get him out of Herod's territory. Now, I say that, first of all, we know that Herod was no friend of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were no friend of Herod, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is the principle that's at work here. They both were opposed to Jesus. Herod is the one who had beheaded John the Baptist. He was intrigued by John the Baptist, didn't want to put him to death, but his wife manipulated him backed him into a corner so that he had to execute John the Baptist. But you remember when Jesus came into his territory and began teaching and gaining this great following and doing all these miracles, that Herod said, oh no, it looks like John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. He did not want another confrontation with a popular prophet that the people were flocking to. And so he wanted Jesus out of his territory. Well, let's learn a few basic world life principles from how Jesus responds to this threat. Three kingdom truths to live by. And if you are writing these down, you're going to find out that they are nothing that's new to you. You've heard these statements over and over if you've been following Christ for very long. These are very simple truths, but they are profound and they are life-changing if we truly live by them. The first principle God is in control. God is in control. You notice there is no hint of fear in Jesus' response to Herod's threat. He says in verse 32, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Why does he call Herod a fox? It's the only time that Jesus ever used a derogatory term referring to somebody who reserves that for Herod. A fox, even today, when you think of a fox, the image is of someone that's crafty, deceitful, sly fox. But interestingly, if you go back to that day, another connection to the image of a fox was that of insignificance. I mean, think about a fox. A fox is not very strong. It's not very big. It's actually a slight little animal. And so in that day, to call somebody a fox was to say, you are not important at all. You are not significant. I'm sure Herod thought of himself as a lion. That's a predator that you could be proud to be a lion. No, Jesus says you're a fox. You're a predator, but you're sneaky. You're deceptive. And you're weak and ultimately insignificant. But notice he says, I've got work to do. He says, today, tomorrow, and the third day, I'm going to continue to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. I'll depart on my schedule. I'll follow my agenda. I'll stick to my plan. Today, tomorrow, and the third day was an idiom in that day. What it means is a very short but set period of time. He's saying to Herod, I'm going to be here until I'm done until my work here is done, and then I will leave, not because you threaten me. He's saying, Herod, I'm here to do the will of my father, 
I will set the day that I leave. You do not set it. The Father controlled Jesus' life and ministry, not Herod. Yes, Jesus would die, but he would die on the Father's schedule and according to the Father's plan and for the Father's purposes. And Herod could not in any way dissuade him from it. When Jesus' mother, Mary, was pregnant with Jesus, she had that great prayer we call the Magnificat. And she said in that prayer, my soul magnifies the Lord. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary understood. Jesus understood. God is the one who sits the powers that be on their throne. God is the one who raises up kings and casts them down. They serve only at his bidding and for his purposes. So Herod could not in any way derail or interfere with what Jesus was called to do. As you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the attitude of Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, there's a strong sense of urgency and determination to everything that he did while he was on earth. But there was never a hint of panic or fear. He was driven, yes, but he was calm and at peace as he fulfilled his mission. Now, it is true that Jesus was the eternal son of God. He was God incarnate. He had a divine perspective, although we don't know to what degree he had full access to that perspective while he was both fully God and fully man in his, in his earthly ministry. But that divine perspective is something that we don't have at all, except in his word. We don't see the big picture as clearly as Jesus did, but we see what we need to see according to the will of God. The word of God has given us everything we need to know in order to live faithfully on the mission that he has called us to fulfill. This is a foundational truth that you must build your life upon. God is in complete control. In the language of theology, he is absolutely sovereign. As Job says in chapter 42, after all his life of, ministry, of misery and suffering, he says in, verse, in chapter 42, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or as God says about himself in Isaiah chapter 46, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Everything that has happened from the beginning of history to the end of history has been based upon not God's foreknowledge alone, but based upon God's will. He says, I will do what I will to do. I will bring it to pass. This is something that every Christian has to get, try to get your brain around, even though you can't fully do it, is that there is no chance in the world. Chance does not exist. Chance is a human construct. It's a way of those who don't believe in an absolutely sovereign God to try to understand the way things happen, but there is no such thing as chance. There are no accidents. 
We are never, ever victims of our circumstances. And that will change the way you live your life if that's what you believe. Now the world looks at our belief in God, an all-powerful God, an all-knowing God, and they say, you can only say that God is sovereign or you can only say he, God is good, but you cannot say both. They will say either God is sovereign but not good or he's good but not sovereign, but he can't be both because the human brain can't get their head around him being both because there's so much wrong and broken and evil in the world. But scripture tells us that God, the God of the scriptures, is both totally sovereign and completely good. You know, theologians from every, through every generation have struggled to fit together that God is absolutely sovereign, totally in control of every event on earth, and yet we make real choices based on what we want. How can both those things be true? But scripture says they are. If you say that God isn't totally sovereign over the choices that we make and the actions that we take, then you make him subject to our will. In other words, there are things that God wants, but he can't have because we, in our will, determine what God can or cannot do. And a biblical Christian cannot be content to say that. Or if you say that we don't make real choices, what we're saying is that this God has basically pre-programmed us as robots and we only do what he planned for us to do. Neither one of those is what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches a mystery. That we make choices, good and bad, and God plans all things that happen, including our choices. I can't get my brain around that. If you claim you can, then you're either a heretic or you're insane because no sane person can fully understand that. Why? Because God is so much bigger than we are. You're this puny little human being trying to understand the God of the universe and how he operates and how history works and how time works and how everything fits together. All we need to do is by faith believe what the scriptures teach. It's not an irrational belief. It's what the scriptures teach that's beyond our comprehension. That's what a mystery is. A mystery is not something that's irrational. A mystery is something that's not been fully revealed. So we share Jesus' confidence. As we pursue our goals, as we pursue our calling, as we pursue our mission in life, whatever that may be, we share his confidence in God's absolute sovereignty and his absolute goodness. So therefore, we need not fear. We need not fear a tragedy, and we need not fear what any man can do to us, even a powerful man like Herod. We need not fear the storms that hit in life. We need not fear the loss of our job. We need not fear the death of a loved one. We need not fear an economic collapse. We need not even fear death itself, because God is absolutely sovereign and God is good. And we embrace both. We live with that tension and embrace both of those truths from Scripture. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 112, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He is not afraid of bad news. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. 
So Jesus responds the way he does to Herod's threat, as real as that threat, as dangerous as that threat was. He responds the way he does because he understands God is in control. God is sovereign. Secondly, not only is he in control, God has a plan. He has a good plan, a perfect plan. He says that Jesus says at the end of verse 32 and verse 33, he says, the third day I finish my course. I must go on my way, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In the original language, when he says, I I finish my course, it literally is on the third day I am completed. In other words, on the third day I reach my goal, my mission is complete, my work is done. Of course, when you hear third day, you can't help but think of the third day when he was raised from the dead. Or when you think of him finishing his work, completing what God had sent him to do to redeem us from the penalty of our sins, you can't help but think of when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished as he breathed his last and died. Back in chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said, and he said this several times during his ministry to his disciples, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He must go to Jerusalem. He says, I must go on my way because a prophet cannot die outside Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be rejected by the Jewish leadership. He must be killed and he must be raised from the dead. Why? Because that was the plan of the Father. And God's plans cannot be thwarted by any man. God's meta plan for history. We have all our, each one of you has a plan for your life. Not only does God know everything that's going to happen in your life, every choice you're going to make, every action you're going to take, but God planned it. He planned it from the beginning. He planned it before the foundation of the world. But all of our individual little plans fit into this meta-narrative, this meta-plan of the ministry of Christ, the mission of Christ. Christ going to the cross to die for our sins. Christ being raised from the dead for our justification. Christ going to the throne to reign over all nations. And Christ returning again to make all things perfect and do away with sin and all of its effects. God has a plan that encompasses the big issues as well as every individual little moment of your life as well. The early church recognized that that Jesus fulfilled in great detail God's sovereign plan when they prayed in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's why the Old Testament prophecies go into such intricate detail about how Jesus would be crucified and how he'd be raised from the dead. Even to the point of saying that the soldiers at the foot of the cross would be casting lots for his clothing. It was to show that everything happened exactly. Even the smallest choices and actions of sinful human beings happened exactly the way that God had planned it. Because God is sovereign and God has a plan. 
And that plan all centers around the mission that Jesus accomplished for us. So let me ask you, did that detailed plan, did that only apply to Jesus or did it apply to your life? Is Jesus the only one who ever lived who had that detailed plan for every moment of his life up until the point of dying? Or does God have that kind of plan for your life? Well, David says in Psalm 31, he wrote this psalm when he was surrounded by enemies. His life was in danger, just as Jesus' life was. And he prays in Psalm 31, he says in verse 15, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. That's how you pray, believing in the sovereignty of God and the good plan of God. My times are in your hands, O Lord. I need not fear. Or as he says, listen to the wording of David's prayer in Psalm 139, verse 16. He says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day was written in God's book before David was born. He lived in that confidence of God's sovereign plan for his life. Whenever I teach on this idea of the absolute sovereignty of God and the plan of God, when I teach on that in the doctrine class for Oakwood, I always allude to my favorite analogy for this. It comes from a book written by Edith Schaefer. She was the wife of Francis Schaefer, the great theologian. She wrote a book called The Tapestry. And she tells of going into the great uh, castles of Europe. And so many of them, when you go into these castles on these big stone walls, they have these gloriously beautiful tapestries, these woven uh, rug-type uh, hangings that, that are on the wall. And she says she's just blown away by the intricacy and the beauty and all the different colors and all the majesty of it. And she says, but if you ever walk up to one of those tapestries and you pick it up and you look on the other side, all you see is a big mess of thread. It's ugly. It makes no sense. But then you put it back down and you look at the top side of it and it's intricately beautiful. And she says that's what the sovereignty of God looks like from an earth's perspective and from the heavenly perspective. From earth's perspective, we look at what God's doing in the world. You listen to the news in the morning. You read the morning paper. Think about what's going on in the lives of your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers, and it looks so messy, ugly even. Everything seems to be chaos. But the message of scripture is that from God's perspective, he's weaving all of it together into this beautiful, intricate, majestic tapestry of history. And all of it points to Christ. And yes, there are some very dark threads in that tapestry, but there are some gloriously beautiful, bright threads as well. And God combines it all to bring about his purposes in Christ. George Whitfield said, that we are immortal until our work is done. We are immortal until our work is done. He's speaking of the same confidence that Jesus has here as he faced Herod. Herod, you do not control my life. Your plan is irrelevant to me. My God is sovereign, and he has a good plan for my life, and his will will never be thwarted. Now, it doesn't mean that we take foolish risks. It doesn't mean that we can become passive or we can do whatever we want. We 
doesn't matter what we do because God's plan's going to be done. That's how an unbeliever looks at what the Bible teaches. That's not how a believer looks. Satan came to Jesus and said to him, why don't you go up to the top of the temple? You say you have faith in God. Why don't you go up to the top of the temple and throw yourself off? And if God, God is true to his promises, he said that he will not let your feet be dashed against the stones. He'll, he'll protect you, Jesus. He'll not let you be hurt if you throw yourself off the top of the temple. And Jesus said, you shall not test the Lord your God. I will not make choices upon things that God has not placed before me. He has shown me what I need to know for my life. If I was called to jump off of temples and not be hurt like a superhero, if that's what God called him to do, then yeah, he would do it. But God had not revealed that will to him. That was not what his purpose was. That's not why he was on earth. He's not going to test God. That's not faith. Faith is doing God's will, living according to God's plan to fulfill God's purposes. We make real choices, and we're accountable for them, and God is in control of that. The classic example, and you've probably heard this many times if you've been a Christian, if you've been in the church very long, the classic example of somebody who lived with these two principles, God is in control and God has a good plan, is Joseph. Joseph lived by these principles, and we see it in his life. His brothers threw him in a pit, debating as to whether to kill him, and eventually decided to sell him as a slave. And the slave traders took him to Egypt. And in Egypt, he ended up in prison for a very long time. And he was mistreated and treated very unjustly during his time there. He suffered long and hard. But eventually, he's released from prison by God's grace. And he becomes, through the wisdom that God gives him, becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And then one day, God brings about a famine. And yes, God sent the famine, according to the book of Genesis. Many people suffered. But in that suffering, his family, his brothers, came seeking help because Joseph had enabled Egypt to provide for its people. So they came seeking help, and when they realized that it was their brother that they had come to, they were struck with deep fear, fearing his revenge, his hatred, his bitterness over all the years for the way that they had mistreated him. But this is what Joseph said to his brothers. Chapter 45, verses 7 and 8. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Oh, they sent him there. But Joseph says, ultimately, it was God's plan, God's purpose. My suffering fulfilled God's will. And he was able to rejoice in that. And just in case we missed the depth of theology behind that statement, in chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says it this way. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let the world intend whatever they intend. God intends whatever we endure, whatever we do, every part of his plan and mission for our life, he intends it for good. And there you have that verse that we quote and sometimes misquote all the time, Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good because God is totally sovereign and he has a good plan for every one of us.
But that brings me to the third truth that we live by. And this one doesn't seem to fit with the other two. Again, we try to grasp this theology that's beyond us in terms of our accountability and responsibility and God's sovereignty and God's plan and our free choices. And, and we try to bring all this together. But don't miss this third point that we see at the end of this passage. God has compassion for the lost, all the lost. As Jesus reflects on his father's plan for him to be crucified by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he cries out with a prophet's lament, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus said this in anguish, the anguish of his soul. It's very similar to what he would say later when he entered the city of Jerusalem in order to go to the cross. He words it in this way, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, because that's how the prophets lamented the sin and rejection and rebellion of the people of God. Jerusalem, when he speaks of Jerusalem, that represents all the many generations of Jewish leaders and Jewish people who had rejected the one true God. And yes, Scripture does reveal God's righteous wrath against his rebellious people. A pure and holy and just God must be filled with wrath against sin and sinners who reject and rebel against him. But what's revealed here in the heart of Christ is the other side of the coin, which is the grief over those who are lost. He goes on to say, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I want you to notice something that might escape your notice at first. Jesus is not speaking of his earthly ministry here because Jesus had spent very little time in Jerusalem at this point in his earthly ministry. So when he says, I've reached out to you again and again, trying to gather you under my wings like a hen gathering her chicks, when he says that, he's speaking as Yahweh. He's speaking as Yahweh, the one true God of the Old Testament. Because Jesus had reached out to them generation after generation, century after century, all the way back to the beginning. And again, and again, his people had rejected him and worshiped other gods and gone their own way. Sounds like kind of an odd image for Jesus to use, a hen. <laughs> we talked about a fox not being a very impressive animal. What about a hen? He's comparing himself to a hen. But he's not talking about the power or the impressiveness or or any of that, he's talking about the compassion. A mother hen for her chicks. That witness, that common grace witness of the created world that mother hens will die to protect and care for their chicks speaks of his compassion for those who even those who are rejecting him. Herod was a fox in the hen house. But the Lord is like that mother hen who wants to gather her chicks under her wing to protect them, to care for them, to provide for them. It's the imagery of Psalm 91, verses 3 and 4, where it says, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. This is the kind of compassion that we hear in the voice of Jesus when he says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. 
Yes, God is in control. He is sovereign. And everything happens according to his good, wise, and perfect plan. But as he says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? But they were not willing. No one who is willing to come to Christ is ever turned away. But so many are unwilling. And the attitude of the believer must be the attitude of our Lord. They are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We must grieve. Not look in pride, not look down our nose in judgment, but look with grief in our hearts for so many around us who don't know the life, the truth, the hope, the beauty that is in Jesus Christ. Christ, by his death and resurrection, has opened the door to the Father and to eternal life. He completed his mission. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. His work on earth was completed. And now he reigns in heaven until his meta plan, his meta narrative can be completed when he comes again to make all things good and perfect again. But in the meantime, our mission is derived from his. We need to see the people around us who don't know Christ as truly lost and grieve over the state of their souls. I love Paul's heart. He's speaking of the unbelieving Jews who have rejected the Christ that he loves and serves in Romans chapter 9. And listen to how he speaks of them in the beginning of that chapter. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Paul grieved over his fellow Jews who did not come to Christ. Do you grieve over the lost? Let me wrap up by just asking this question. Have you reached the peak of your life yet? Have you reached that place where your purpose, your goals have been completed? And what goal are you striving for? What is your mission? Or better asked, what is God's plan for your life as you understand it as best you can? Paul was a man who was driven by the same principles that Jesus Christ was driven by. Paul believed that God is in total control. Paul believed that God has a plan. And Paul believed that God has compassion on the lost. How did it affect his life? Well, he speaks in terms of the Olympics. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. Do not run aimlessly. Align your mission and purposes with the plan that Christ has for your life. And you will find the joy of living with purpose and meaning until the day you die because your mission, God's plan for your life and your mission in life is not over until the day you die or until Christ comes again. Let's pray. Father.
we do live aimlessly much of the time. We do seem to wander from thing to thing, looking for peace, looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment. We do allow the world to both threaten us and derail us from the mission you've called us to, and we do allow the world to distract us. Father, I pray that as we've reflected upon our Lord Jesus and the way that he responded to these threats against his well-being, I pray, Lord, that we would more and more develop the, the faith and the attitude of Job and of Joseph and of David and of Paul and most of all, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that our life does have a plan. It, we are on a mission, that our life has purpose. And if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know that life and that purpose, I pray that as they have heard your word explained to them, that they would come to follow Christ and find what they're looking for. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.